welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Matthias Hofer from Northwestern University talking about upper tract reconstruction. Hello and uh, today is my lecture on upper tract reconstruction. My name is Matthias Hofer. I'm the reconstructive urologist at Northwestern. Um, upper tract reconstruction is by far not as common as lower tract reconstruction, as I'm sure all of you know. But it's always good to uh, once in a while rehearse the uh, working techniques, what is involved, because several times a year it certainly comes around. So this talk is first about UPJ obstruction, which is one entity, and then the whole uh, spiel about uh, ureter reconstruction including uh, re-implantations into the bladder and the various moves that you can make to make this happen. Um, if there's any questions in between, I think uh, they, get, uh, they get collected to be asked at the end. Always feel free to reach out to me and, and ask me. Let's start with uh, UPJ obstruction. Um, a UPJ obstruction can be functional or anatomic. And the hallmark of it is an impaired urine flow from the pelvis into the proximal ureter, then secondarily leading to hydronephrosis. It's not one single entity, but several mechanisms can lead to the obstruction from, for example, proximal ureteral strictures to congenital UPJ obstruction, high insertion of the ureter into the renal pelvis kinking, for example, even due to a more distal obstruction by a stone and then hydroureter, um, a scar formation, and so on. Um, crossing vessels, I should mention. So the hallmark of it at the end of the day, as you can see here on the right, is the um, hydronephrosis. And patients usually present in various ways, um, a flank pain, hematuria, stones that form, um, UTI, GI symptoms, essentially many, many things. And usually these get picked up by imaging done for abdominal pain or for any other reason and hydronephrosis being identified. Some of these patients also have only very limited hydronephrosis and only get symptoms if they uh, uh, have increased fluid intake or typically drink, drink beer. Um, uh, the diuretic function of the alcohol uh, with the fluid intake leading to an excess urine production. And that excess urine production, so to speak, outgrows the uh, drainage capability of the ureter and the UPJ. This is called a dedal crisis after the physician dedal. Um, a congenital UPJ obstruction, which is something a little bit different pathophysiology, pathophysiologically. It is a, a peristaltic segment right here in the most proximal part of the ureter, essentially imagining it like the circumferential ureteral muscles are not existing. The uh, congenital obstructions though can be asymptomatic for many years all through childhood, teenagehood and adulthood and then can present at, at any time. Obs uh, diagnosis of UPJ obstruction Usually, as I said, it's getting picked up with images for something else. Hallmark is hydronephrosis. That's the first thing to identify. What I recommend for all of these patients that extends both for both the UPJ obstruction as well of anything that you have uh, find in the ureter, such as ureteral strictures, is to perform a LASIK uh, renal scan. Just because something looks narrow doesn't mean it actually is functionally impeding. And, um, um, you'd be surprised how often you actually think there's no way this ureter can drain or this UPJ uh, can drain. And then in the Lasix renal scan, it's not a problem at all to get the urine out in a reasonable time. Um, a further work of a diagnosis that you can do is uteroscopy and retrograde pyelogram. These are means similar to a CT. Um, the goal here is to identify the exact location and the length thereof. So whatever means you need to do to get that information is valid. Um, one thing, especially in those patients who have had this or you suspect this to have had this for a while, usually you can determine this by the thickness of the renal parenchyma, watch the renal function, whereas some patients can go years with uh, hydronephrotic kidney without increase in their creatinine and the GF, uh, decrease in their GFR, um, some patients can only go for a couple of weeks and deteriorate pretty quickly. 
Now the renal scanner, you've all seen this before. Um, again, uh, perform it and uh, make sure there's actually a retention of the tracer and the half time over 25 minutes. Now, a surgical intervention. The indications for the intervention is for relief of pain, for relief of physiologically significant obstruction, and uh, that I'm saying is um, those uh, with a positive renal scan, recurrent stone formation or recurrent infection. This is not a complete list. Uh, whatever, I mean, you can add as, as to your liking, essentially. Any goal of the intervention is to provide a drainage system with an unobstructed urinary flow. One of the moves that you can do, and I think this is a usually a good choice as a first intervention, is an endopilotomy because success rates of 90% uh, have been reported, though most of those studies uh, have a follow-up of about a year. So the long-term success rate is likely lower than that, but still pretty good, especially for an endoscopic intervention. It is not as good in those patients that have aggressive vessels because you gotta be very, very careful. It's not contraindicated, but it's certainly a little bit more questionable where you should be doing it. You can perform this retrograde or integrate uh, the retrograde approach is certainly done more commonly. What that entails is getting access to the ureter and placing a safety wire, advancing a ureteroscope, and then using the homeum laser, as you can see in this little insert, to incise laterally. What's important here is that the incision has to be done really from the inside of the renal pelvis to beyond that stricture segment. And it's not a problem to really incise until you see the fat. Um, there used to be a device called the Accusize, I think it's off the market for five, six years, and their goal for that was actually to incise as, as that much that you would see an extravasation of contrast uh, periurally. So make sure you're incised deep enough if you're doing it, and then you can leave a stand afterwards, usually four to six weeks. Some patients, I, uh, some of uh, urologists, I should add, also balloon dilate after the incision. The goal here is to uh, break up the scar even more. So I get here two uh, questions. How do you time obtaining a renogram in someone who already has a stent or a perk in place? In these cases, uh, they usually get the perk in place because they're hydronephrotic. Um, if you have a perk tube, if you have a stand in place, then it's uh, a re renal gram is not very, um, not very informative. So I would probably not, uh, uh, it's, it's, I would not get a renal gram in somewhere that's a stand in per se. If somebody has a perk tube, I actually think is actually gives you more uh, options to work with patients up, for example, with an integrated study that you can do in the office, and then you can just watch over the contrast strains or not. Let's get back to the uh, that gets back to the presentation. So the antigrade endopilotomy. So antigrade endopilotomy is a little is a more effective way of doing it. The the uh, main reason therefore is you can get due to the nephroscope you can get a larger instrument into the kidney into the renal pelvis, um, and. It allows you to use a cold knife to incise the stricture laterally. The advantage of the cold knife is that you can go deeper without having to worry um, about any scar formation due to the uh, electric energy to the cautery or to the um, energy used for the laser. Um, the success rate of these are higher than in a, a, a retrograde, but obviously it's more involved since you have to get access to the uh, kidney and then have to uh, dilate the tract. Now the open or robotic surgical approaches, so traditionally you could say if an endopilotomy fails, go ahead and perform a, uh, a open or, or approach. When I say open or robotic, um, you'll see I'm go through a few approaches how we can do all this. And all of these approaches can be done either way. So whatever you can do open, you can do robotically. Sometimes it's harder with a robot for UPJ obstruction if there has been prior repairs and there's a lot of scarring. The, uh, for open approach, the most popular is an exoperitoneal flank approach, usually underneath the 12th rib. What uh, is recommended here, what I recommend is stay outside of the, uh, of the peritoneal cavity and strictly do it uh, exoperitoneally, which in most uh, cases is possible. 
there is a variety of surgical approaches and the indication is a little bit different for all, but it's any of these UPJ obstruction, it's not one size fits all. You have to be sometimes a little bit more inventive and use a variety of approaches or even combination thereof to uh, fix it. The uh, common consideration I would say, expose the entire renal pelvis. It's not enough to just get onto the uh, UPJ itself. You really should free up the renal pelvis in the proximal ureter. Be careful not to be too aggressive with it because you don't want to uh, destroy any of the blood supply, but you really need to know what you're dealing with. And the most common way of fixing this is a dismembered pyeloplasty or Anderson-Hines. What this entails is transecting the proximal aspect of the renal pelvis and then the and then distal to the, uh, the ureter, distal to the uh, stricture or obstruction or whatever, whatever you find, and then simply spatulate the ureter and reapproximate it to the renal pelvis. This is also a good move for a crossing renal vessel, as you can transpose the vessel behind the ureter. This is the uh, procedure of choice for those with congenital UBJ obstruction due to an avascular segment. A, uh, a peristaltic segment because you can cut it out. This Cardino Prince verdict flap is not as used as much anymore. Um, I think Coke de Vere, which I'm gonna show you in a second, is a little more common because it gives you a more flap length. What this, uh, what this procedure is, is using the often very dilated and extra uh, renal pelvis as a flap for reconstruction of the stricture. And you generate a flap here from with a base here, the proximal renal pelvis, um, reaching towards the granular renal pelvis, and uh, making this and, and elongating this incision in the uh, proximal ureter in order to open it up, as you can see here. And then you just simply suture the medial aspect of the flap to the lateral aspect of the ureter, and then close it back up over a stent. It's a good procedure, as I said. It's not very good for high-inserting ureters or for anything that comes up um, above the uh, uh, an imaginary midline of the renal pelvis, because in this case you can extend the flap. Cryptivert is a variation thereof, and it's probably more popular now. Instead of just in the flap and the anterior surface of the renal pelvis, you spiral it to the posterior aspect, which gives you a longer and bigger flap but the concept of it is the same. Again, not ideal for high inserting uh, ureter. The big advantage is it requires less of an extra renal pelvis. Another choice uh, or the uh, procedure of choice for those with a high insertion of the ureter um, is the Foley YV plasty. And it's a little bit more complex to explain. So, but in, a, in just a few sentences, what you're trying to do is you're trying to reconfigure the proximal part of the renal pelvis as an anterior, as a, as a distal, as an proximal ureter. So you incise nearly horizontally into the renal pelvis on both sides, generating a flap that you can pull down, which you then just include into a spatulation of the ureter just underneath it. So that from a high inserting ureter, you make a caudally inserting ureter. Now, one uh, procedure that is an option that I want to bring up, because once you're dealing with it, you probably get patients sent that have had prior attempts of repair of UPJ obstruction, and they have failed, and that's the reason why they show up. If this is the case, these patients often have a very um, endorenal pelvis or hardly a pelvis at all. So we can't really do any form of pyeloplasty here anymore. In these patients, your best choice is bringing the ureter right to the uh, caudal part of the kidney and then anastomosis directly to the collecting system. Um, it is a good procedure as a salvage procedure. The outcomes are not fantastic. So um, I caution to use this in any way as a first-line procedure. The way it is done is you cut off or you truncate the caudal aspect of the kidney, the inferior post, so to speak. Make sure you incise as much as you need to get about a one centimeter wide um, entry into the collection system. And then you just anastomose the ureter to it and then uh, close the renal parenchyma in a way that it does not bleed. So take home messages from uh, UBJ obstructions. 
it's always dependent on the uh, location length of pathology. There's something you need to determine beforehand. Some ways is, uh, for example, a retrograde pyelogram uteroscopy. Sometimes you get the information from imaging. If the patient has a percutaneous nephrostomy tube and uh, you have access to the ureter too, then uh, do a up and downogram. So inject uh, contrast from above as well as from below in order to uh, opacify all the parts of the ureter that are not they're not injured and uh, get the best information there. Always get a laser renal scan to determine the functional impairment. This is not always possible, um, as the one question just said, but uh, I, would always, I would always at least remove the stent, go back three, four weeks later and do a laser renal scan before I would uh, put a patient under an invasive operation as any of these are. Um, the endopilotomy may be an exception thereof. Determine the anatomy of the renal pelvis because that does determine, does influence what technique you use. And um, at the end of the day, as you have seen, once you have the exposure, there is, you can do any, any form of a reconstruction of the UPJ and the proximal ureter using the renal pelvis. What exactly you use, whether you use a, a combination of Kultivert and Anderson Heinz and, and, and Foley, that is up to you. But once you're there, um, don't be afraid, just, just reconstruct it. Now, ureter restrictions, they're a little bit more complex. Um, the most common ideology of ureter restrictions are stones, iatrogenic, and radiation. Again, this is not a complete list, it's just the most common ones. And um, just a few sentences about iatrogenic ureteral injury, because those are essentially the most common. They can e either be from direct trauma, for example, transection, suture ligation, crush injury, coagulation too close to the ureter, and then heat injury. They can be from indirect trauma, ischemia to large caliber instrument. This is more common than you think. Devascularization and thermal injury. Sometimes you can't even determine the exact uh, surgery or intervention that had led to the ischemia because this is a process that can take years to develop. Specifically problematic um, for the reconstruction of the ureter is radiation therapy. Um, the effects of radiation can be direct, and I'll get to this here a little bit later, or indirect leading to microangiopathy, in which case anything you reconstruct, you sort of speak have to make sure the reconstructed tissue has enough blood supply to actually survive, not reform restriction. Um, you can divide the ureter into three levels, proximal, mid-ureter, and distal. And fortunately, most of the ureter injury are actually distal with about 90%. Those uh, do benefit from a re-implant and you don't have to uh, get too creative. 9% are middle. Those are the most tricky ones to fix and 1% are proximal. The proximal repairs I'll show you is pretty much uh, a uh, UPJ or a pyeloblasty, similar to UPG obstruction. Culprits for iatrogenic um, injuries are OBGYNs, as we know, is 6482, followed by colorectal. But I'd also like to emphasize that urology is uh, responsible for about a third of all, uh, for up to a third of all of these uh, cases. So <clears throat> I think we're sitting in the glass house here too. I'm not really sure what's going on here, but. I hope you can see this. I don't know why this slide doesn't uh, really uh, broadcast very well. The, um, the etiology of urologic ureteral injuries, so most of them are very easy to treat. Those are the mucosal aberrations, the perforations. It's about 7% uh, of all ureteral injuries. They happen usually during stone procedures. In those cases, you can leave a stand for a few weeks and then that's it. Uh, an avulsion is a horrible complication, usually from a stone injury and usually happens if a kidney stone gets lasered and a fragment that's too large for the UPJ obstruction is trying to be retrieved, then disrupts the UPJ obstruction right at the and the insertion of the ureter in the UPJ, and then so to speak, inverts and pulls the ureter out. Fortunately, this is not very common. 3% are ureteral strictures. Um, it's not usually actually the stone procedure that does that. It is the impaction of the stone that leads to ischemia and then to scar formation after the functional muscle and mucosal tissue has uh, undergone metablasia to, uh, to a scar tissue. Uh, the, 
frequency of urine strictures though has decreased to under one percent since the advent of access sheets so certainly the procedure has some components of uh, of etiology here when i say pelvic radiation therapy is difficult again there is at least two mechanisms how radiation can destroy tissue one is the direct damage to the distal ureter usually if you look at uh, prostatic uh, prostate cancer radiation or if you expand this a little bit for cervical cancer and the microangiopathy with ureteric ischemia so the blood supply to the ureter and the proximal aspect comes from the kidney and from the distal aspect essentially comes from the bladder so anything that gets radiated in this area will not only injure ureteric tissue that is very close to it so here in the uh, true pelvis but also can extend to the vessels and above The uh, direct radiation damage is about one to three years, so you're gonna pick that up fairly quickly. The microangiopathy uh, radiation still can have a latency of several years, and it's dependent on the delivered dose, and cervical cancer, prostate cancer don't give each other very much on that. Um, the incidence at 10 years of follow-up is supposed to be 1.8 to 2.7 in prostate cancer, I think with intensity, modulated uh, radiation therapy this is there's certainly a decreasing side and uh, 1.2 percent in cervical cancer the problem with cervical cancers those tend to be always bilateral now what's the diagnosis and treatment of urethral strictures the management again depends on the location as i said proximal mid or distal and the extent thereof Diagnosis retrograde pilogram is what we usually use. That's a, a standard and fairly easy to do. Angiopilogram if a PCN is placed. Often, if you, uh, often patients are referred to you with, uh, with your restrictions, they have this in place, and then you can actually do this in the office very easily. That's what I do here. A ureteroscopy is always a good choice to do and take a biopsy from it, especially in patients after radiation therapy, just as a best practice. Um, again, the goal here is always is to determine the location and the length. And I should also add, and I get to this at the end, if you talk about distal ureteral strictures and plantar reimplant, do a cystogram, get some, get information about the size of the bladder, capacity of the bladder. As in the UBJ obstruction, you can use endoscopic management for these strictures, especially for the short strictures. Um, the dilation with a balloon is most common. I would not use laser for these just because they're not thick enough, the ureter isn't thick enough, and you're just asking for trouble. The success rate is about 70%, as one study from Kokura showed, but the follow-up here was only 13 months. So if you think about urethral strictures and how successful those endoscopic measures are, um, it's, it's certainly much less over time. Um, I'm not saying it's not a good choice just to start with it because it's certainly not as invasive as any of the other repairs, but I think it should counsel the patient that you should expect a uh, recurrence of the stricture at least at some point and inter a new intervention. So in the upper ureter, as I said, and we went through this here a little bit earlier, you can reconstruct it with any of the means that you know from a UPJ or from pyroplasty for UPJ obstruction, for example, the Scardino or Cobtivert, especially if you need several centimeters of strictures. One thing that I want to emphasize is a nephropexy that is valid for um, proximal ureteral strictures, a little bit more than for mid-ureteral strictures, but can even come in uh, play here too if you're in a bind. If you mobilize the kidney, and you can do this bluntly usually, if you mobilize the kidney, then you can gain three to even four centimeters sometimes off distance, which is for most ureteral strictures all you need. So once you actually mobilize the ureter and see the anastomosis will still be on tension or you can't get it together, do this as next move. It's very simple to do. It's usually more successful on the left because of a longer length of the renal vein. But like I said, three centimeters is a standard that you can actually get from that. So keep that in mind as an adjunct maneuver for yourself. So when I said uh, the worst strictures to reconstruct are the mid-ureteral strictures, um, that is because the means that we have are, or used to be, I should say, uh, not to be ideal either for long-term success rate or for keeping any surgical intervention to a reasonable level. The extent of the pathology will dictate the options that you have. 
Ureter urostomy is a good first choice and is usually fairly successful, at least in a not, not extensively irradiated field. And you can manage strictures for about two to three centimeters. Um, now, in the last recent years, buckle only uh, ureteroblasties have become more and more, uh, more and more popular, and those actually allow the reconstruction of longer segments, several centimeters, up to five, six, seven centimeters. If you so, well, the only problem here is you, you sort of speak, you have to have some ureteral lumen left. If you have a complete obliter obliteration or very tight stricture, it gets more and more difficult. Second line options, and I really want to emphasize this, I go to this in, in detail too. It's, I know they're in every textbook and, and everybody knows about them, but they're not first line options to take because they do have not ideal outcomes and they are extensive surgeries with which you sometimes even burn quite a few bridges preventing you from doing anything else. This is a TU, transureter urostomy, yang Monty substitution or ileurter. Um, uh, Francis Collier is awesome option, I'll get to this. Um, and those are certainly not first line measures. So this is actually a patient uh, that we treated here in the course of the uh, last half year, I should say. On the left, he had a bilateral urea strictures after soap procedure, was a young guy. Um, impact the stone along strictures. First, on uh, we first fixed him on the left with an open procedure. The reason why he went open was because he had a retained stand that even after several rounds of Eswall, I was unable to actually pull. And then the one on the right we fixed with the robot. And for the left side, we used an open approach. As I said, we made a flank incision just underneath the kidney, and then we. Uh, you end up in the retroperitoneum in these patients. And again, I, I try to stay in the retroperitoneum for those, especially since I plan to use the robot for the right side. Um, you get onto the ureter. That wasn't too difficult on this guy because at the end, um, right when we got to the procedure, he had two stents placed, which I couldn't get out. Um, what you do is once you identify the ureteral pathology, um, you transect the ureter, you debride the ends of the ureter. So, if it's an injury, debris it. If it's a stricture, get rid of the scar. If you don't get rid of the scar, it will come back because those fibroblasts will proliferate again. Then spatulate in opposite aspects of the ureter and then use interrupt the suture um, to put it back together. I don't like to use running sutures because once you put too much pull on the running sutures, you tend to end up the lumen again, to, end, to narrow the lumen again. The stent usually stays in place for six weeks. Now, I mean, sometimes getting asked, how do you determine the location of the ureter? Um, most of the time, you actually see the narrowing. You see a caliber change, thick to narrow and back up, because the scar contracts not only the lumen, but also contracts the whole circumference of the ureter. If this doesn't work, don't try to wait. Put a ureteroscope up. Get to the stricture, you will see the light reflex. And you can use your fluoroscopy if you don't have access to the ureter or if this just happens to be in the room and you can start with that. That is, in my, my opinion, not as sensitive than seeing the stricture from the outside or using ureteroscope, but as an option. Some people use methylene blue. You can do this especially for obliterated strictures. And let's just imagine you have a percutaneous nephrostomy tube and you just put it in and then you see how far it goes. At the end of the day, you want to prevent to transect or incise the urine in an area where there is no pathology because it is obviously less than ideal to fix a ureteral uh, defect that you've made. Not so much because it's gonna scar up, but whatever you do is you gotta, you gotta impair the blood supply, especially if you have a repair than a few centimeters next to it. Um, the outcome of the ureteral repair next to it is gonna be um, worse and worse. Um, and this is a quick video about a, the uh, robotic ureterostomy of the patient that I just talked about. This time on the right, let me see whether I can get this to run. Um, we had mobilized the kidney first uh, completely laparoscopically. And uh, here we get into the ureter, we're freeing up the ureter, which you can see on the bottom. There's the testicular vessel on top of the testicular vein on top of it. Um, and getting rid of all the adjacent tissue. Again, um, don't skin it too much because you do want to keep the blood supply to the ureter with the robot and this improved visualization that is certainly easier. We then uh, advance the ureteroscope in a retrograde fashion from below and you 
can use the fluoroscopic setting to actually ensure the light reflex. We mark it on the ureter and then transect the ureter. And um, it was actually, the scar was as crunchy as you can see here in the images. We had left a wire here, and you see a wire coming up in a, uh, a couple of minutes right here. It's always a good feeling if you see some urine spilling out of it, because then you, you at least know that you got you got the stricture. Then what I next is I spatulate the ureter, usually for a centimeter and a half and so on, because I think it's easiest to actually excise the stricture. Once you spatulate the ureter, you can see here I'm opening up the lumen and the whole cranial part of it that I'm cutting out now is actually the stricture tissue, which you can then easily circumferentially remove. Again, if you don't get the stricture tissue out, there is a high risk of these scars to come back and the stricture to redevelop. And the last thing you want to do is have to go back into an operated field around the ureter because that's a nightmare. And then you do the spatulation here on uh, both sides. Make sure you get the stricture tissue out of both sides and then just use interrupted uh, sutures. Here we used a four or monocryl to uh, out to in, in to out, so that the sutures are actually end up on the outside of the ureter to uh, put it back together. I should give a shout out here to my chief Ashima who helped me with this case and did a great job. The important last step for these operations, and you'll see it here right at the end in a couple of seconds, is that you should wrap these repairs in something vascular. And usually there's ample adipose tissue around, um, either from inferior to the kidney, from the retroperitoneum, but the more you can wrap around it, the better vascularized this area of the ureter will be, and the less likely of a scar recurrence it will be. As you can see here, we were wrapped it in a flap of adipose tissue that we pulled down inferior uh, to the kidney once we had, uh, once, as I mentioned, we went in laparoscopically at first to uh, mobilize the kidney and the ureter. So we just pulled it down. So the robot is a good choice of actually repairing these. And sometimes, the ureteral strictures are too extensive for the scar that you take out of the injury. The defect, so to speak, that you end up with before the reconstruction is too extensive to just bring the ends together. You are a little bit limited with the mobilization of the ureter because you can't get too close to the ureter itself to not injure its blood supply. As I said, you can use nephropexy to give a few centimeters, but it doesn't always work. One way of of helping yourself out here is do an augmented anastomotic uh, ureteroplasty. Similar to an augmented anastomotic ureteroplasty, what it is, if you have two uh, circular parts, the ureter, proximal distal ureter, instead of trying to bring it together, which doesn't work, just bring one aspect together, so to speak, in a kink. That gives you several centimeters, as you can see here in figure B, and you will end up with a defect in the contralateral side, in this case, anterior. Um, for example, in a rhomboid, it doesn't always look as nicely rhomboid as here, but it can. And then what you do, you harvest an appropriate uh, area of buccal mucosa and just patch it on it with signal drop the stitches. Again, for these, wrap it in something that is vascularized because this graft will need some support for inhibition or escalation um, to help itself survive the first few, um, a few days until angiogenesis neovascular growth happens. So wrap it in something well vascularized such as adipose tissue. 
Um, Li Zhao from NYU has propagated the uh, long segment um, um, buckle only uh, ureteroblasties and um, this uh, is a picture from his paper. This is a robot. In this case, he used a straight, or he fixed a structure of nearly five uh, centimeters. You see here the wire. You see that the ureter is open in its anterior aspect, and you see that sort of the ureteral blade, so to speak, the posterior aspect is actually intact. The uh, next move is to harvest the buckle craft, and then if you see the ureter here, and you see the stent in the ureter, to anastomose the uh, buckle craft and the lateral aspects of the opened up ureter. It's shown uh, very nicely here. He already uh, uh, sutured the lateral aspect of the ureter to it. He had inserted a ureteroscope, which both helps with the identification of the mucosal edge, which can be a little bit uh, difficult at times, and then also to make sure that the diameter of the ureter that is repaired is uh, sufficient. It's always better to uh, use more buccal mucosa just to uh, leave the reconstructed lumen um, wider because it will contract over time. Um, and as you can imagine, the longer the buccal craft is, the more important it is to provide adequate blood supply. In this case, you have to really densely wrap it in some adipose tissue. So these, um, just one sentence, these uh, buccal mucosal the rear blasts you certainly have expanded um, the uh, the our spectrum of of surgeries and will make the second line options a little bit less common. Again, what I'm saying is, if you need to do this, do these. But they will they are more involved and they have less favorable outcomes. So if you can get away with a buckle graft, for some people I know that sounds scary. Do it before you do anything else. A transurethrostomy is essentially only indicated now if a buckle is not feasible, at least in my opinion, as an opinion that's obviously not uh, valid for everyone. And uh, also if a ureterostomy, so a reimplant is not feasible. For example, those patients with rectal injury, major vascular injury, expensive bladder injury, and so on, radiation is a culprit for all of these. Do not use TEO if you have inadequate donor ureter length to create an osteotic tension. That's not always easy to figure out preoperatively, but it's a pain if you figure this out intraoperatively. And have an inadequate recipient ureter. Now, this one you will probably figure out. For example, retroperitoneal fibrosis or urethral cancer. Also, extensive stone disease of the donor ureter is a contraindication for it because you will never be able, or in most cases, not be able to perform uh, ureteroscopies in the uh, segment that is brought over. But I don't want to completely bash this procedure because it is an option um, if many other, if many other uh, the surgeries are just not feasible. And what you do is you mobilize the donor ureter, put it on a Draxon stitch, put it behind the uh, sigmoid through the mesentery, and then perform an end-to-side anastomosis. So while this is a, so to speak, extensive operation, because you have to cross the abdomen, you have to open the posterior trapezium and so on, it is technically actually uh, a fairly uh, simple one um, with a simple end-to-side anastomosis. Now, what are the problems for it? Because I'm, I'm talking about it. Um, and the need for revisions is probably the most common one. It's, it's 10%, but all the series that are out there, like the one from Ivashko, are fairly small, single-center series. And whenever I see this, I get skeptical. If nobody publishes about it, usually because the outcomes aren't terribly great. Um, stenosis of the anastomosis at 10%, over six years, anastomotic leaks of 10%. Again, I think the need for revision of 10% is already fairly critical. Now, if you have extensive injuries as such in an avulsion, you obviously cannot really do a 25 centimeter buckle craft. An ill ureter is an option for you. This is a substitution of the ureter, either all of it or part of the ureter, with a segment of ileum. Fortunately, as urologists, we are all experienced with a bowel work and harvesting ileus. Ileum is not uh, uh, that problematic for us. What is important in any of these ileum? these repairs of the ureter with ileum is never do an interposition. Never do a procedure where you plug in the ureter in the proximal aspect and then let the ureter come on this aspect on the bladder. The ileum will produce way too much urine, uh, way too much mucus that it can flow out of the ureter. So 
the distal aspect of, an in, of a segment of ileum always has to go straight into the bladder. Amartius et al. probably has the largest series with nearly 100 ileurus, and his complications rate are um, fairly high, 43% short-term and 23% long-term. The good news here is that anastomotic strictures are only present in about 3% of patients. Um, however, 7% of patients develop fistulas, usually to anastomotic leaks, and 25% of patients had an increased creatinine level at a follow-up of 36 months. Whether this is due to impaired drainage, um, due to a mucus in the ileum, um, and that's, I don't know, but something must be going on. A nice variation of this is the Young Monty ileurator, um, usually designed, or originally designed as a catheterizable stoma. You can reconfigure it also to span a fairly long segment of a ureter. Again, I, I caution you against using this interposition. I would always have the ileum and straight to the bladder. A, um, a segment of uh, five centimeters of ileum can get you about 10, 12, even 15 centimeters of ureter. The way you do it is you have two five centimeters uh, segment or two 2.5 centimeter segments of ileum that you harvest first. Then you open them up antimesenterically and then you rotate them by 90 degrees and suture them back together. What you do here is you get length at the expense of circumference, but if you do it for your reader substitution, you don't need the whole entire lumen of an ileum anyway. So it's actually an ideal uh, procedure, therefore. Now, as I said, 90% of the strictures are distal, and that is good news. Um, because all of these surgeries to, to re-implant the ureter, so to speak, is, are fairly successful and they're fairly easy to perform. What's uh, important here to know that the blood supply to the distal ureter is tenuous. There is some blood supply that comes from the bladder, but a lot of it is actually still coming from the ureter and ureteral branches itself. So a distal ureter can get injured if anywhere more proximal there, usually level of the vessels or, or above, um, some injury happens, be it radiation, be it surgery, be it lymph node section, and so on. The uh, distal ureter will uh, be left with insufficient blood supply. Insufficient blood supply means tissue metaplasia into less metabolically active tissue, and that means a scar. And the major concept of repairing these distal ureter injuries is to bring the bladder onto the ureter because that not only relieves the obstruction but also restores the blood supply beyond that. Uh, beyond that impaired blood supply that caused the stricture. There's a couple of, it's the, I mean, injuries or strictures that are very close to the bladder, you can just re-implant because you can mobilize several centimeters of the ureter right next to the bladder. But more commonly, you will have to use some sort of maneuver or surgery, more extensive surgery uh, to get the bladder to the ureter. There's either a source hitch or an extended source hitch, a boari flap, and then I brought in the nephropexy here too because you can do that as well. The only problem is that also requires a whole mobilization of the ureter, of the entire ureter, which then uh, is a fairly extensive operation. A psoas hitch is a way to reconfigure the bladder in, in a way from a ball shape to a tube shape, to a rectangular, so to speak. So what you do first is once you get to the bladder, you do a horizontal incision or you can crank it up a little bit obliquely towards the hitch. And because once you have the incision made, you can reconfigure the bladder, so to speak, perpendicular to it, and then uh, close it up. That um, transforms a wide bladder into the long bladder and gets you actually, that gets the tip of the bladder now on beyond the vessels or towards the uh, psoas minor tendon, as you can see here, where the tip of the bladder is sutured to make sure the sutures don't, are not full thickness because you don't want the suture material in the bladder. <clears throat> There's always a discussion whether you should crank it tight or leave it loose. I leave it loose a little bit because I don't want to strangle the tissue of the bladder. And I use uh, proline sutures, non-absorbable sutures for it. Some people prefer vicro sutures for it. Um, it just makes me sleep better at night if you use proline. And then lastly, you just plug in the ureter. Um, in adults, reflux is not so much of a problem. So 
I wouldn't waste the time and waste your reader length in uh, performing a non-refluxing surgery or reimplantation at least uh, initially. So what I do is I use the right angle, insert it, mark out the area where I want uh, the ureter to come in, bully on top of the bladder, bring the ureter into the bladder, and then use interrupt the sutures to anastomose it circumferentially. What you can do is an extended psoas hitch if the psoas hitch itself is not uh, sufficient. Um, the approach to this is as similar to the psoas hitch that I just said. So you make an oblique incision perpendicular to where you want the bladder to be, and you expose the ureter, uh, the proximal, the distal ureter end, <clears throat> getting rid of all the stricture, and you can make a horizontal relaxing incision. Um, that allows you to gain additional length in the uh, psoas hitch. You can make as many incisions as you want, and at the end of the day, you can, instead of having a round bladder, you can really reconfigure the bladder in the long tube. If you have reasonable bladder capacity, and I say 350 milliliters and above, you usually can get as high as, as the pelvic rim. If you need more space even, you can transect the contralateral superior pedicle right here that gives you a few centimeters more. Um, after reimplantation of uh, the ureter, just goes the uh, bladder. <clears throat> this is uh, an x-ray of a patient. She had an extensive ureter injury. You see, um, she has a radiation sort of cancer and whereas the, the most distal three, four centimeters fraction, so normal caliber uh, viable ureter, um, she had a stricture from near the pelvic rim all the way down to that area. You can obviously not do anything with this anymore. And in this way, we were just doing a psoas hitch and we're doing the extended psoas hitch and um, extending the dome of the bladder, so to speak, all the way to the stricture here to the pelvic rim. We didn't need to do any abori flap or any other maneuvers. Um, I'm a little bit critical of the abori flap. I don't want to talk too bad about it because I've been criticized about talking too bad about it. A body flap is a good maneuver, but I think not at the expense of a hitch or an extended hitch because those are easier. The problem with a body flap is always to ensure that you have wide enough base, which should be five to one. Now, if you want to bridge, therefore, three centimeters of your real defect, you should have about a 15 centimeters, centimeter base of the flap which is more than, than uh, patients actually, uh, more than uh, the size a normal bladder actually is. So if you, um, if you uh, cut corners on that though, it is always a problem to prevent anastomotic strictures in the bori flaps. So I think the bori flap is good if you don't have any other choice than using it before you have to revert to any other of the second line treatments that I've mentioned earlier, but I would not use this as a first line treatment. Last resort, if everything fails, auto-transplantation. This is one thing that probably most urologists think is underutilized overall. We always say it's underutilized overall, but we never do any more of that. Um, I think the reason therefore is that if we already go do the ureter obstruction, that's for those cases that have pelvic radiation therapy and auto-transplantation is not a good choice since the vessels are way too brittle. <clears throat> or have extensive distal injuries for a reason that uh, transplant would just not work. This is a quick um, overview of uh, uh, decision process. Again, determine length occasion etiology for the distal ureter restrictions to a cystogram. If they are long, you'll have to do some sort of ill ureter yang monti autotransplant. Um, if they are short, you can always try dilation. Um, it will likely fail eventually, but it does have the advantage that is far less invasive than anything else. The rest of it is then determined by the location of the ureter, either a proximal ureter, a renal pelvis flap ideal, distal ureter, re-implant, psoas hitch, extended psoas hitch, bar flap if you need to, and the most critical one in the mid ureter, ureter ureostomy for short strictures. Buckle onlay certainly has extended the the indication of primary parasomid ureters, <coughs> excuse me, and then extended tissue sometimes sometimes can uh, come into play, or if you have to, a TUU. So, in summary, take-home messages: know what you're dealing with, identify location and length, determine the bladder capacity, be able to employ a variety of social techniques. There are not a terribly uh, hard 
And uh, just don't be afraid of use whatever you have seen. You don't have to have done it before, but uh, whatever you've read up on. Both, all of these surgeries can essentially be performed robotically or open. That's your choice. A buckle only ureteroplasty can avoid ill ureters. And I think uh, that really has uh, brought some uh, new, um, some new, uh, uh, techniques into play. Be careful with body flaps and um, use the real mobilization nephro nephropexy as a junk maneuver. You never really want to be in the situation where you just can't get the ureter back together. So, but there are, there is help and I think everybody at some point has been there and if you haven't then you probably haven't done enough of these and there is junk maneuvers, just know about them. Don't shy away of nephropexy. It might seem very involved initially but it's a good maneuver to give you a couple of centimeters. That's usually all you need. Thank you. All right, Dr. Hofer, thank you so much for that great talk um, and giving us the chance to kind of live vicariously in your, in your robotic cases. Um, so thank you very much. Um, and thanks to everyone who submitted their questions to us. So we'll just get started. Looks like we've got about 10 minutes here. They're popping up, so there were quite a few. What's that? They kept popping up here, so I think there were quite a few. Quite yeah, a few. yeah, we've got a we've got a good a good number here, um, so we'll see how how many we can get through. If not, you know, the rest will be on the website too. So we'll make sure all your questions get answered. Um, going back to you know what you were talking about uh, with pyeloplasty and sort of the different um, you know upper upper tract rec uh, recon that you do. Um, do you routinely leave a drain in these patients? Um, how long? Yeah, yeah. I, I always leave a drain in these patients because I, I just don't like the idea of having, every, uh, having urine extravasating in the retroperitoneum. I think it's a problem. So when I, I should have mentioned that, yeah, I always leave a drain. And do you put the drain on suction? I know there's a little bit of variation. I start, I start on suction, but if the outcomes are too high, then I take it off suction. You're absolutely right, especially with upper tract reconstruction. You don't really want to suck the urine through the anastomosis. That is mm -hmm. common. So I would try suction. If the outcomes are high, just take it off or leave it off. It's, I'm not sure there's a right answer okay, or wrong answer. Case by case to see what the outputs are. Um, do you do ureteroscopy uh, in all patients with a suspected ureteropelvic junction obstruction? Yeah, I would recommend it because, I mean, here at Northwestern, people get referred to me, so they have worked up beforehand, but I found out unless you really look at it yourself, it's hard to, it's hard to come up with the best surgical plan. I guess if you already know that you have to repair it, you don't really... You don't really need so much information because you can just apply any any of the different choices that are said. But I think it's always good if you plan to operate on somebody, take a look yourself. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the light reflex. Um, maybe you can explain to all the you know everyone listening and kind of what you're looking for when you're when you see that light reflex in the robot. Um, I think it was on one of your slides about the uterus. Yeah, because. Sometimes you'd be surprised. So you work these people out with imaging, with uroscopy, and you think you know exactly where the stricture is. And then you start, you, you are in the operation and you just stand there and say, I don't really see the stricture. So if you don't see it from the outside, then I would have a, I always perform a uroscopy next because the light reflex through the urine open operation is fairly well visible. And you just advance the urine to the stricture and where the light reflex is, you just mark it. And you remove the ureteroscope and you just transect it. Mm -hmm. And the robot is even easier because you can use the fluorescent light feature you switch to, and then the light, the light, uh, the the visible light from the ureteroscope shows up as a bright green light reflex. Got it. it it's it's even more like you don't even have to be right on the ureter to see that. That's that's the advantage. That's cool. Um, okay, a couple questions. Oh, you don't want to, you don't want to sort of speak transect the ureter and end up with a middle piece of the ureter in between two transections because the blood supply to this is already destroyed. So that will never heal up. You don't want to, you don't want to, you want to avoid cutting somewhere where you don't have to cut because then your repair gets really, really tedious. Yeah. Okay. Um, couple questions about nephropexy. Um, one specifically, do you need to do this for your ureterochelicostomy? You don't have to. If you have enough proximal length, you don't have to. 
You can imagine that if you UPCA obstruction, the, the UPCA usually doesn't extend all the way down. If this is the kidney, down to the kidney, but somewhere stops here. And then mm -hmm. if you trunk the ureter right here, you can just move it over to the kidney and you don't really need too much mobilization. But since you're there for the calicostomy, you can just put your arm around and just push it down. Um, and can you kind of talk us through the steps of a nephropexy? Um, do you start laterally, kind of, uh, you know, give us a better yes, sense so, of... Yes, so what I usually do is I, I need it if I don't have enough ureter length. It means I'm already on the ureter. I follow the ureter up towards the kidney. And then I do more, way more open operation than robotic operation. Then I can just take my hands and then stick with the kidney and just free up the kidney with intraoral span from the perinephric fat you have to it start it will start bleeding at some point but usually the bleeding is not very not very um, terrible what is problematic once you get around the kidney cranially are the adrenal vessels so often enough you actually have once you just get to the dome at a 12 o'clock position you can push the kidney down and you already get sufficient centimeters and then you just put a proline suture in somewhere to the Uniparenchyma and then the abdominal wall laterally. Mm -hmm. If you need to mobilize the kidney completely, then uh, you have to go medially and essentially free up the vascular pedicle. Mm -hmm. Make mm -hmm. sure you don't injure any of the adrenal vessels when you mobilize the kidney mm -hmm. and, uh, and also the renal pelvis. So uh, be careful of the adrenal vessels. That's, that's essential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then, do you ever do a reduction of the uh, like extra renal pelvis if it's big and redundant? Do you ever excise it? It's it's easy. You can yeah. The one of the problem is if there's been these patients show up if they have bad hydronephrosis, if they had infections in there and so on. This pelvis is usually not a nice pelvis like in the pictures that I showed you. This is usually pretty cruddy and uh, and uh, scarred up so sometimes it's easier just to leave it alone if you don't think that you get sufficient drainage i mean the pelvis is so extended that even if you do the upa obstruction you'll have like a saggy pelvis hanging around mm -hmm. with redundancy of urine in it then you should certainly use it it's it's easy just grab it make a patch incision or something and just suture it back together great um, and uh, going back to the topic of autotransplant, got a couple questions about this. Mm -hmm. um, we do, as, you know, a number here at UCSF, we work really closely with our kidney transplant colleagues for that. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of um, program do you have set up at Northwestern and how do you, you know, um, how do you do these cases? We, I actually never seen an autotransplant case done here. So whatever we had, we were able to fix. Oh. But I do like my transplant surgeon, so I wouldn't have a problem asking them to do it. That's really cool. Um, okay, great. Um, and uh, another question, a couple questions about follow-up. Mm -hmm. uh, so one about, you know, when do you repeat a MAG3 scan to look at drainage in these patients? And how do you time that um, stent management, things like that? No, the stent I leave in for six weeks usually. If it's just a re-implant or an easy re-implant in four weeks, I do not get any releases renal scan unless they become symptomatic. Okay, great. Um, and do you always do uh, an anterior cystotomy for the psoas hitch? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's and just, how long? How long? Uh, uh, how long do you leave a Foley in these patients? Do you get a cystogram as well before the Foley comes out? Two weeks and I do a cystogram, yeah. But I am, it's easy for me because I can do these in my office, you know. Okay, a um, couple last questions uh, here uh, about endopilotomy. Mm -hmm. uh, what laser settings are you using and do you find yourself needing to do multiple cuts sometimes? Yeah, sometimes you need multiple cuts here. The most important thing before you do an endopilotomy uh, make sure there's no crossing vessel because the limits you a little bit. The settings for it, you can go up in energy and uh, down in frequency. So, uh, I don't know, 0.88 or something. Um, you can start lower and just see whether you can cut the tissue and uh, go up as you need it. I think not every UPG obstruction or approximately restriction is alike. Some have thicker scars, some have uh, thinner scars. Um, there's no exact number. Start low, go up. Mm. Just make sure you really laser deep enough. That's, that's probably the best advice. Mm -hmm. 
to see fat you had said until you see fat okay <laughs> all right perfect well we're at the top of the hour um thank you dr hofer for uh, joining us this morning um, and i can answer these you said you got to send me an email then i can yeah, kind of get it into a document and, and get okay, it sent. Great. thank you very much Thank you very much. And hopefully everyone can fill out the survey to evaluate this session as well. And then we'll see you in our other Zoom room. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.